Ephesians chapter 6, and we're looking at uh, standing against Satan, and uh, this is number 5, and I'm going to read Ephesians 6, uh, 13 and following. Excuse me, uh, I'll, I'll start at verse 10. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. <clears throat> Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand. <coughs> stand, therefore, having girded your waist with truth, and we're still on uh, 14b, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, and above all, taking the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. Now, last week we considered the blessed prayer of righteousness. And I have some applications from last week that I didn't get to. I ran out of time, and I'll be brief. Uh, I got sick, got a bad cold this week. But we're going to look at reasons, our topic today, reasons, <coughs> and excuse my coughing, reasons for the blessed breastplate of righteousness. There are other reasons as to why the breastplate of righteousness is so important that merit our attention. So consider this a continuation of last week, more, more application. First, God expects his people to reflect his holiness as regards his communicable attributes. Okay, he's got incommunicable attributes like infinity and so forth that we can't mirror, but those communicable things like righteousness and holiness, uh, the part of holiness that we can communicate, that communicate, yes, that's important. In both Testaments, a chief reason for righteous living is Yahweh's own holiness. Leviticus 11, 44 and 45. And by the way, you can also find it in uh, 19, 2, 27 and, 20, and 16. And then look at uh, Exodus 19, 6, Numbers 15, 40 to 41, Deuteronomy 23, 14, Joshua 24, 19 to 20. And then it's repeated verbatim in 1 Peter 1.16. So it's a very important concept. I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore consecrate yourselves, and you shall be holy, for I am holy. I am the Lord who brings you out of the, up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. Leviticus 11, 44 and 45. This appeal to the holiness of Yahweh is foundational to Scripture's revelation of God's nature. He is unique and is infinitely righteous in his being and therefore he requires a lifestyle that accords with his holy and righteous character. Now, what did Jesus say to the Pharisees? You are of your father the devil because you do the works of your father. We are to reflect our God in how we live, in how we think, in what we say, our priorities in life. As unbelievers, obviously, especially leftists, 
reflect the worldview and thoughts of the devil. Man's highest ethical duty is to imitate God, the Creator. When Jesus discussed the binding nature and correct interpretation of the Old Testament moral laws, Matthew 5.48, he said, Therefore you shall be perfect, just as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, holiness is defined by God himself as a keeping of his moral, moral law. Now, I'm going to clarify that. When speaking of God, holiness refers primarily to God's uh, at, uh, otherness or uniqueness from creation coupled with his infinite glory. God is uncreated, infinite, and of a completely different kind of being than finite creation. There's uncreated being, there's God, totally unique, and then everything else is created being. They're not alike in any way, in, in that sense. God is other, he's holy. The ethical element of holiness, or the moral purity of God, becomes more, becomes more prominent during the Old Testament revelation of Yahweh. Because of the fall... And man's loss of original righteousness. Man before the fall was like God. Remember it says we're created in the image of God. Being holy and righteous in his being. Ephesians 4.24. I forget to write down the Colossians passage. Which, well, that emphasizes true knowledge. After the fall, men are spiritually and morally depraved apart from saving grace. The holiness code, with its specific moral laws, together with the many ceremonial laws about forbidden foods, you can't have pork, you can't eat snakes, you have to have a certain kind of hoof, all these foods, the unlawful mixing of crops, you can't plant crops together in a certain way, uh, and you can't mix certain kind of threads, you can't mix wool and flax and so forth, ritual cleansings, etc., are all designed to teach the people an ethical separation from the heathen or the unsaved world system. The food laws were not health laws. Pork, when fully cooked, is especially the way they raised pork. Uh, they didn't have giant pork factories. Uh, but it's, it's, it's safe to eat when it's fully cooked and it's very healthy. These are not health laws, these are laws of separation, to teach separation from the world. Don't be like the Canaanites. Don't be like the Amorites. Don't be like the pagans around you. Be separate, says the Lord. The people of God are called saints, for they are to be separate from the world, set apart. And that's what the word sanctified simply means, to be set apart unto holiness and their old life of sin. Consequently, they are consecrated unto God. For this reason, the church is compared to a holy temple, Ephesians 2.21, the holy city, Revelation 21.2, a holy nation, Exodus 19.6, 1 Peter 2.9. We are holy because we have been called out of the kingdom of sin and darkness by God. The ethical connection is prominent in a number of passages. For example, Deuteronomy 28.9 reads, listen carefully, The Lord will establish you as a holy people to himself. 
just as he has sworn to you, if you keep the commandments of the Lord your God and walk in his ways. How are you to be holy? Obey the commandments. God's moral commandments, not your own commandments, God's commandments. The call of grace comes with the responsibility of sanctification or covenant faithfulness. The standard of sanctification in the New Covenant era is the whole moral law of God. Paul says, Romans 6, 19-22, So now, present your members as slaves of righteousness for holiness. Having become slaves of God, you have your fruit to holiness. And then, of course, 1 Thessalonians 3, 12 to 13. May the Lord make you increase and abound in love one to another and to all, just as we do to you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness. Because our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, uh, before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. To be holy as God is holy, we must repent and fully consecrate ourselves to Yahweh through Jesus Christ. We must receive God's covenant law by faith and define all personal, family, and social ethics in terms of God's revealed moral law. Okay, so it applies to your mind, your heart. It applies to your life. And remember Deuteronomy 6, love the Lord God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and then take the holy law of God. And, uh, it's supposed to be on your hand, it's supposed to be on your forehead, you nail it to the gates of your house. Now the uh, Orthodox Jews take that literally, and they, you'll see them walking out of a little box on their forehead with a law in it. That's not what it means. It doesn't mean to literally nail it on the doorpost. It means it's supposed to rule your house. We must reject all non-Christian or pagan concepts of ethics and must strictly separate ourselves from atheist or pagan worldviews, partnerships, covenants, or friendships. <coughs> Second Corinthians 6, 14-18. You remember a couple years back I did a series on the book of Judges and that was Samson's big problem. He loved pagan women. And he hung out with pagans. Big problem. Now, this radical separation does not mean asceticism, if you know what that is. You know, having a monastery, you know, go living on top of a pole, go living in a cave in the mountains and fasting all the time and beating your flesh and all that. It, that doesn't mean asceticism. For number one, we are to be in the world, but not of the world. John 6, 17, 15 to 16. Oh, John 15, 19, and 1 John 2, 15 to 17, and in 1 John 4, 17. Okay, that idea of asceticism comes from pagan Greek thinking. And it permeated Roman Catholicism. Number two, we are commanded to be a salt and a light to pagan culture and society. Matthew five thirteen to sixteen. Well, if you go off and live in a monastery somewhere, or you go to buy a house in the, up in the middle of Idaho, up in the mountains somewhere, and you're, you never see anybody, how can you be a salt and light to culture? It's just another form of asceticism. Number three, the Great Commission requires the spiritual. Gospel conquest of whole nations. This requires evangelism, interaction, debate, and proclamation. Where did Paul go? Now, we're not apostles. We don't have to do this. 
uh, well, I'm a preacher. I, I, I probably should be doing it if I have time. He went to the to cities. He went to cities. And he preached to pagans in cities. He went where the pagans were. He went where the fish were. Did that mean he went to the local brothel? Or he went to the local uh, pub uh, and got drunk with the heathen? No. He lived separate from them. He didn't think like them at all. He lived a very godly, holy life. But he interacted with the heathen for one purpose. To point them to Jesus Christ and the gospel. If you're hanging out with pagans for any other reason than to witness to them, you're in disobedience to this requirement. We are commanded. Hebrews 12, 14, pursue peace with all people and holiness without which no one will see the Lord. And note the words of Psalm 45, 6-7. Your throne, and this is a messianic prophecy, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is a scepter of your kingdom. You love righteousness and hate wickedness. And also see Hebrews 1, 9. One of the great problems with American uh, political conservatism, and I'm talking about the, the really good guys that are, you know, like your Ben Shapiro's and these kind of guys who, who are very, uh, very good thinkers and very good debaters, and they're, they're really good at this. You have to hate wickedness. You have to, be, you have to stand against it biblically. You know, this attitude of conservatives, well, I don't, if you want to be a sodomite, that's fine. Just don't push it on me. Well, no, sodomy is a civil offense, and it should be illegal. And we have to identify it as evil and wicked. And that, of course, does not mean we're going around looking for them, trying to kill them. It just simply means that they're driven into the closet where they were for most of our history. <clears throat> the point of Christ's coming is a complete transformation of earth from wickedness, sin, violence, and evil to holiness and righteousness toward God. Zechariah 14.20 In that day, holiness to the Lord shall be engraved on the bells of the horses. The pots in the Lord's house shall be like the bulls before the altar. In other words, even, even your horse, where you plow your field, will be dedicated to Yahweh through Christ. The gods of the heathen nations, Samaria, Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome, etc. were not righteous or holy. Not at all. They were often wicked, scandalous, arbitrary, and grossly immoral. Committing adultery, committing fornication, committing murder, being petty. The heathen created idols that reflected their fallen, depraved character. Think of Marvel. Think of uh, Superman. Think of the superheroes. DC Comics. Think of su their superheroes uh, that are highly uh, defective in character. That kill people and commit immorality. That's the pagan view of the gods. Powerful, finite, immoral. Most atheists, they boast about their rationality and science yet are every bit as immoral and foolish as their pagan predecessors. They posit an evolving universe where all concepts of ethics are purely imminent, arbitrary, positivistic, that means they're simply made up, <coughs> and changing. They teach that the voice of the people is the voice of God, and thus whatever is accepted by the masses and the supposedly scientific experts is, at least temporarily, regarded as ethical and good. 
There's a really good clip of Joe Biden from 2006, I believe. It might be 2009. I think it's 2006. Flat out saying, marriage is between a man and a woman. That's the law of the land. And that's the way, that's the way it's got to be. That's it. It's been settled. It's between a man and a woman. <laughs> well, things have sure changed quite rapidly in the space of 10 years because of ethical relativism, because men love darkness rather than light, because it's simply pandering to Satanism. That's all it is. The result is a demonic culture that murders unborn babies in the millions, praises gross sexual perversions, and gives criminals more rights than their victims. Jesus came and defeated Satan, sin, and death. So a day is coming in which the laughter of the wicked men and the cries of their victims will be replaced with songs of praise to Yahweh. Psalm 22, 3-5, another messianic song. You are holy, enthroned in the praises of Israel. Our fathers trusted in you and, they, and were delivered. They trusted in you and were not ashamed. Second, these are reasons why the breastplate is so important. And remember, the breastplate is ethical, the moral law, righteousness, holiness. Holiness and righteousness is necessary for the fulfillment of the Great Commission or godly dominion. By his perfect redemption, Jesus Christ established salvation and godly rule. Paul says, he's talking about his own ministry, so in Romans 15, 18, that Christ came to make the Gentiles obedient to God. It's not some unbiblical form of pietism where you just get saved and you live as you did before. He came to make them obey God, obey God's law, not have sodomite marriage not have abortion on demand, not have socialism or theft by the state. When Yahweh created man, he ordered him to subdue the earth and exercise dominion over it. Being created with true knowledge, righteousness, and holiness, Ephesians 4.24, and of course Colossians, Adam and his posterity was to create a godly civilization that followed God's righteous rule. But due to the fall... Due to sin, man attempted to establish an autonomous dominion over the earth. <clears throat> God was ignored, and his righteous law was repudiated for human autonomy. The pagan civilizations that arose were kingdoms of sin, tyranny, and death, all of them. Yes, they made some beautiful temples. Yes, they made some beautiful buildings. Yes, they did some amazing things with aqueducts and, and, and walls and chariots and all these wonderful things. That's true. But they were tyrannies, full of slave, debauched chattel slavery, prostitution, homosexuality, you name it. They were terrible. But God, in order to set up a kingdom of righteousness, had to send a second Adam, 1 Corinthians 15.45, Jesus Christ, who had not failed in his mission, but will return man to his original task through his perfect redemption and the establishment of the kingdom of grace. Okay, you'll hear this, especially among evangelicals. <clears throat> the dominion mandate, also called the cultural mandate from Genesis. Uh, oh, that doesn't, that, that's been set out of gear, but that doesn't apply to anybody anymore. Nonsense. It still applies. The only difference is now it has to be achieved through salvation, through faith in Christ. As the sin bearer of the elect, Jesus suffered and died to restore people to a position of judicial righteousness. 
He then rose from the dead as the victor who sends the Holy Spirit to enable them to walk in righteousness as God's own children. As a result, those redeemed are recalled to the original task given to Adam, but with a salvific foundation. It can only be done through Christ now. Adam, before the fall, had a natural love of the law. He was without sin. The law was on his heart. But after the fall, the only way to even know what's true is to believe in Christ. Through Christ, they are to exercise dominion by being faithful covenant keepers and habitually applying the righteousness of the law to every area of life. See Romans 8.4. Okay, for example, people, uh, people talk about how wonderful capitalism, free market economics. Yeah, it's great, but it has to be free market economics under biblical law. Under biblical law. So it's not simply a matter of how much profit you can squeeze out, uh, out of people and how much you can uh, get out of your workers. It's tempered by the ethics of Scripture. So when you have an, a widow and you're selling her windows and your windows cost you 250 bucks and you're charging her $1,500, you don't do that to a widow, etc. Now, the manner in which God has revealed this plan for the restoration of righteous dominion is interesting and demonstrates that God has much more in mind than simply saving a few souls here and there, which is the evangelical view. Let's do evangelism. Let's get people to come to the front of the church and bow the knee and say they believe in Christ. Or actually, they don't even teach that. They say, accept Jesus into your heart. Let him in. You know, open up your rib cage. Let him in. And then your job is done. But that's not what the Bible teaches. That's not what the Great Commission teaches. In the early working of the covenant of grace, we see the application of grace to families. Noah, Job, Abraham, and the patriarchs. And this reality makes perfect sense in that the original dominion mandate was given to a married couple, the first family. The command to bear children and spread out over the earth and have dominion over the earth was given to a married couple. It's given to a family. An aspect of this task was bearing and raising godly children. When the covenant promises were given to Abraham, they applied to him and his seed. His children, his descendants. Of course, that refers to Christ explicitly, in a sense. But, God is concerned with covenant continuity through time. In the biblical worldview, the family was ordained by God and given specific responsibilities to glorify God through work, culture, and society. The family is defined by God, one man, one woman, and their children, had a God-centered function and origin. The family is a God-given covenantal institution for the purpose of economic, cultural, and spiritual dominion that spreads through childbearing and rearing that continues godly dominion generationally throughout time. And geographically, as families multiply and spread out, God is not concerned with overpopulation. The earth has plenty of resources. God's concern is godly dominion. Families that believe in Christ families that serve him, families that follow the law of God and apply the Bible and the law of God to their businesses and so forth. 
Adam's fall into sin has not changed the family's purpose, but after the fall's fulfillment can only be achieved through Christ's saving work applied to whole families generationally. I'll never forget, I was working at a retirement community for rich people when I lived way back when I lived back in uh, near Philadelphia. And I walk in this house. We used to go help people that were old who needed help. It was a retirement community for very rich people. And I walk in the foyer of the house, and there's a big giant picture of Charles Hodge on the wall. And there's a picture of A.A. Hodge over here. There's all these pictures of, of Hodges and Princeton and all this stuff. Well, this was the great-grandson or great-great-grandson of Hodge. And he was an apostate Episcopalian. He had all these pictures. He had handwritten documents by Hodge. Both, both Charles and A.A. Hodge. And he was totally a pagan. Now, Hodge will do great things through his writings in the future. Yes, both of the Hodges. A.A. Hodge is a great writer. <laughs> but how sad, how tragic that their seed... He was an apostate, liberal, uh, Protestant Episcopalian, which is warmed over Romanism. Of course, with, with, it, with uh, liberalism, with the, with the idea that the Bible is not the word of God, it's even worse than Romanism. Roman, conservative Roman Catholics believe the Bible is the word of God. They just add their own traditions to it and make it null and void through their uh, many heresies and, and additions. The modern satanic state views the traditional family as an arbitrary result of social evolution that is oppressive. Okay, they, they view the idea that the man became more powerful and women had to submit to men. They, they view that completely negatively as simply as something that happened through evolution. Now, of course, because of sin, uh, men could be unloving and could be jerks to their wives. That's true, and it's very common for that to be true. The state now defines the family and uses their concept of the family as a collective resource for obedience and service to the autonomous state. The family exists to serve the state, which is the new God. Remember what happened in Virginia? And the, the, the progressives, the Democrats, are openly saying parents don't have a right to teach their children. Parents don't have a right to, to have input into what is taught to their children. It's the state's job. It's our job. And if you interfere, you're interfering with us trying to mold the mind of your children into good little pro-sodomite, pro-abortion, pro-socialist Satanists. And that's true. And we know it's true. Look at what's being taught in California. Look what's being taught throughout the country. You know, they have, they have uh, so-called transgendered or transvestites come and do little dances before little six and seven-year-olds, which is nothing but a gross, disgusting perversion, and they should be put to death. It should be a civil offense. <clears throat> the task of godly men, dominion is progressively being taken from the covenantal spheres of the family and the Christian church and handed over to the state. Remember Hillary? It takes a village. And this is why biblical law and the Bible is so important. The three main covenantal spheres are the state, the civil government, the family, and the church. And what the, the, the autonomous state, the, the satanic state wants to do is to absorb all the responsibilities of both the family and the church. 
whose responsibility is to take care of poverty? Well, it's the church. It's the well. It's first and foremost a family's responsibility. If you're unemployed or you get in a wreck and you lose your truck, it's it's responsibility of your relatives, your first your immediate relatives and then other relatives to take help you get out. You know, live with them for a while, get out, get back into business. It's not the responsibility of the state. And the secondary responsibility was to the church. And before the rise of the welfare state in the 20th century, there used to be orphanages run by the church. There used to be all kinds of poverty programs run by the church. And what was great about these programs was that they were all designed to teach faith in Christ and biblical responsibility through hard work. That's all been taken over by the state. Why? Power. It's all about power. And the state is God. So, uh, they teach, well, blacks are not responsible for uh, the 70% of births out of wedlock. Uh, they're not responsible for the incredibly high crime rates. Blacks are 5% in five California. They commit 50% of the crime. Okay. It's, and what are we told? It's whitey's fault. It's white oppression. White privilege. Nonsense. The black churches, most of them, are satanic to the core, they're antinomian, they worship the state, they reject the Bible, they reject biblical law, they reject Jesus Christ as he is defined in scripture, and they worship the state. Responsibility. The Bible teaches responsibility. It, but the Democrats, it takes a village, which means give it, hand everything over to the state, the family is, is to serve the state, the church is to serve the state, or to stay out of it, just stay out of it and let us do everything. The purpose of family, according to the secular humanistic view, is to be an obedient resource for the state in order to spread the humanistic vision of the state's concept of the kingdom of God on earth. That is it. That's what's going on today. When you see these Republicans cooperate with the Democrats for sodomite marriage, and they cooperate with the Democrats for socialistic programs, they're Satanists, just like the Democrats are. Instead of men being responsible to God... By trusting him, obeying his laws, and using the earth for God's glory, man is called upon to believe in the autonomous state, submit to arbitrary, positivistic, absurd, and evil laws, and live to glorify the state. Why did the Democrats pick Biden? The progressive love him. Because he's, he'll believe anything. He'll say anything. He has no moral foundation at all. He's totally evil. He's totally satanic. In Europe, children as young as three years old are having sex change operations. Now, I didn't even think about that kind of stuff until I was at least seven. And even then, I didn't care until I was probably 12. This, these, what's going on among our society is insanity, but it's satanic at the core and people love it. The people are trained by public schools and the mainstream media to look to the state for moral direction and action. And all of this involves great deception and coercion for statism never results in blessings but only curses. Look at Venezuela. Look at Cuba. Look at the old Soviet Union. Look at Vietnam. Look at any socialist state. And it's a complete disaster. In, in, in Venezuela, people are starving. People are trying to eat out of dumpsters. Does that affect... The progressive Democrats who want to do that to America? Not a bit. 
because their view is not based in reality. It's a commitment to Satanism. It's a commitment to human autonomy. But the Bible tells us that the greatest school is the Christian family, where children are taught to look to Christ and are trained and dis disciplined by God's moral law revealed in Scripture. <coughs> Deuteronomy 4.9, Deuteronomy 6-9, Ephesians 6-1-4, Revelation 2, 1-22, and of course, the book of Proverbs as well. Then, the church or the kingdom of grace was applied to a whole nation, Israel. Now, while it is true that Israel was the Old Testament expression of the church, it also served as an example when it was faithful to God's law order to the surrounding pagan nations of a godly, just, obedient society and culture. And that's taught explicitly in Deuteronomy 4, 5 to 9. Look, I'm giving you a perfect law. If you're obedient to this law, all the nations around you are going to look at your great economy, they're going to look at how great your society is, they're going to look at how wonderful everything is, and they're going to say, boy, who's, what God do they serve? But Israel, unfortunately, was not very faithful. They were faithful here and there. While the coming of Christ and the achievement of a perfect redemption with the coming of Christ, the primary task of godly dominion through the kingdom of grace is given to the multinational church, which is a separate and distinct covenantal institution from the family and the state. But the church's task involves discipling families and whole nations. People say, well, we need to get back to the Constitution. Well, obviously the Constitution is way better than what's happening now, where people are just acting like a bunch of Marxist nutcases and sex perverts. But we need a Constitution that explicitly recognizes Jesus Christ as king over America and implements biblical law. And if you're not working for that, you're not working for what Christ told us to work for, which is to disciple whole nations. And if you read the prophets, Christ will be victorious. With this in mind, we must remember that the resurrected King Savior is king over the entire earth. He has earned the right of dominion through his redemptive obedience, and every covenantal sphere must look to him and his law to establish righteousness in the land. The state doesn't have the right to make homosexuality legal. The state doesn't have the right to say, go ahead and murder your babies. The state doesn't have the right to say, oh, you're, you're depressed, you want to commit suicide, go ahead. The state doesn't have that right. Moral laws come from God. And whatever law you follow reveals the source of that law is your God. If it's not Jesus Christ and God the Father who gave us the moral law in the Bible, then you're worshiping the state. The individuals, families, churches, and civil governments must all bow before Christ and work together to establish righteousness biblically defined. Therefore, the breastplate of righteousness involves both personal and societal transformation. As Christians in a fallen world, we have a task of restoration. We believe in Jesus and follow his righteous law, not simply for personal peace and blessings, but also in order to work out our salvation, our sanctification and perseverance, and re-establish the God-glorifying rule and dominion ordained for mankind at the creation of planet Earth. I don't look back to the Founding Fathers and say, what a bunch of geniuses, what a bunch of wonderful guys. Yeah, they were very intelligent. 
but they explicitly left Christ out of the Constitution. Now, part of it was part of it was they were following the right wing enlightenment of people like Locke, and the other part of it was is that they were simply naive. And at that time, most states in the United States had the establishment of a church. They still. If they didn't want to establish one denomination over the United States, which they couldn't really do anyway, because the, each, you know, some states were Episcopal, some states were this, some states were that, they were all different. They could have at least explicitly acknowledged that the 66 books of the Bible are the Word of God, the triune God of Scripture, Jesus Christ is resurrection, He is Lord over our nation, and you cannot be elected to office unless you're a Christian, a Bible-believing Christian, and a member in good standing in a Bible-believing church. They could have done that. And they refused, and they admitted during the debates, you can read about it in my Covenanter book, they admitted in the debates that if the people want a Buddhist or an atheist, they're going to get a Buddhist or an atheist. And that's what's happened. The task of godly dominion starts with personal sanctification or self-government under God's law by the power of the Spirit, but it must not be limited to personal piety. This biblical perspective will help us understand our role in this world as soldiers of Christ. Our job as members of the kingdom of grace is to work through our personal piety, our families, and our application of God's law to every aspect of society to turn back the devil's kingdom of darkness. <clears throat> Christians stopped doing that. They stopped doing it because of the rise of modernism, where the Bible was believed to be full of myths and full of errors. And so the church simply became secular humanistic with religious terminology. That's the mainline Protestant denominations who all now are pro-abortion, who all now have sodomites ministers and lesbian ministers and elders, who all now are totally explicitly pro-democratic, pro-socialist, basically pro-atheist in their views. And then the other thing was the fundamentalist who reacted to the rise of modern pagan scientific theories about evolution and so forth by retreating into an unbiblical pietism where we're going to leave the world of the devil and we're just going to focus on the prayer closet and church. Yeah, those things are important. But if you leave society to the devil, don't be surprised when they lock you up for preaching that homosexuality is a sin or that dressing a woman dressing like a man or a man dressing like a woman is a wicked abomination, which is already happening. When professing Christians deny the Great Commission, the full meaning, and essentially hand society over to Satan and his followers, they place themselves and their children in greater jeopardy. Not simply because of the syncretism and compromise that so often occurs when God's people are surrounded by wicked people in civil governments, but also due to the, prosecution, the persecution that will inevitably come when a culture becomes dedicated to the kingdom and culture of Satan. Lot. Think of Lot. He chose where to live based on economics without his walk with God being the number one consideration. And he surrounded his family with a bunch of total heathen swine. His wife did not persevere, did not have faith, and his daughters became thoroughly corrupt. Don't be like Lot. And yet Lot himself did not apostatize, but he made some great mistakes. You can make mistakes. David made some great sins and errors. Solomon made some great sins and errors. Most people do. Most Christians do. 
well, I could say we all do. It's just how big they are. David's were really big, and, and uh, Solomon's are really big. <laughs> but don't apostatize and don't don't compromise with the devil. Third, <coughs> another reason for the breastplate of righteousness, and this is super important, and this is emphasized by Scripture, is in order to nurture our daily communion with God and our covenant faithfulness. The law of God was given to Israel in the form of a covenant document. Exodus 34, 28, Deuteronomy 4, 13 to 14, that serves a few critical purposes. And I, I'm being very brief here, but I mean, I could, there's many passages that call the Ten Commandments basically a statement of the covenant. And then some passages talk about uh, several chapters of the law as the covenant. It's the covenant law. One is related, they serve a few critical purposes. One is related to the fact that Yahweh is the God, Father, Creator, and Savior of the covenant people. Exodus 19, 4-5 and 20, verse 1. <coughs> How does the Ten Commandments start? I'm your God. I saved you, Israel. I brought you out of the land of Egypt. I saved you. Now here's my law. <laughs> As Christians, we have a moral obligation to love and serve God who gave us life who has absolute authority, and who saved us from our sins. The law given to Israel was an objective that is external to man, detailed, inscripturated, perspicuous, inspired, perfect, formally ordered summation of God's revealed will. It was a system of law by which the covenant people could have personal righteousness, sanctification, personal sanctification, Separation from the evil around them, holiness, and a system of true justice within the courts of the land. Societal sanctification, societal holiness, cultural righteousness. These are all things that are important to God. People are taught today, oh, that's for the Old Testament. Today, uh, yeah, be, go to church, be pious, be, you know, be holy, uh, but... Society belongs to the devil. Just don't worry about it. Don't polish brass on a sinking ship. The law was summarized in the two tablets of stone, the Ten Commandments, because the moral law was permanent, unchanging, and non-negotiable. And the general view of scholars these days is that there were two copies written in stone, and God wrote them with his own finger. Uh, one was for the people, and one was for God. It was a covenant document. You, you get a copy, I get a copy. Another reason for the covenant law is to maintain a loving relationship or to nurture a continued fellowship between God and his people. And this reason is connected to our sanctification and perseverance. Our relationship with Yahweh comes through justification. Our justification through the perfect, objective, saving work of Christ. His sacrificial suffering and death removes the guilt and penalty of sin. Expiation, propitiation, redemption. And his perfect righteousness merits glorified eternal life. We're justified by the imputed righteousness of Christ, not by our own works. But our sanctification, the keeping of God's moral law through Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit, is designed to maintain a loving family relationship already established by Christ. We are justified in order to be sanctified, holy, and faithful. 
And for this reason in Scripture, God is not only compared to a loving Father, and that's both the Old Testament and the New Testament, although it's emphasized more in the New, but it's also spoken of as the church's husband or bridegroom. Isaiah 61.10, Jeremiah 2.32, Revelation 21.2.9, and 22.17, and we could talk about uh, many other passages. When the people of God backslide and fall into gross sin, they are compared to one who commits adultery. Jeremiah 3, 8 to 11, Jeremiah 5, 7, Ezekiel 16, 32 to 38, Ezekiel 23, 37, and Revelation 2, 22, etc. And this is especially true of idolatry. Compromises with our pagan culture and the world is a form of spiritual adultery. What, you don't like me? You don't like my law? You don't love me? You love the world? You like whores? I mean, you read the prophets. They're extremely vivid and powerful. Most of those prophets would be kicked out of churches today. They'd be too, too radical for churches. God said to Israel when it backslid, and this is from uh, Ezekiel 16, 32 and 38, you are an adulterous wife who takes strangers instead of her husband. I will judge you as women who break wedlock or shed blood are judged. I will bring blood upon you in fury and jealousy. And you think, well, how could God in 722 BC wipe out the northern kingdom? They were adulterers. They got the death penalty. They, they got what they deserved. They rejected salvation. They rejected the law. And they followed idolatry. How could God, in 587, allow Babylon to conquer Judah, where people starved to death? And you read the prophets. Women were eating their own children. They were so hungry. How could such horrible things happen? That's what God does to adulterers who hate him and his law. The adherence in whole or part to a false satanic worldview is at least as wicked and abominable as unlawful sexual lusts. Okay, uh, that's one thing Christians in America, you know, sexual sins are super bad. But sending your kids to be indoctrinated with idolatry in the public school, that's great. That's fine. Having Christmas, which is a pagan holy day, has nothing to do with the Bible. Nothing. Invented by Roman Catholics to get pagans in the church. Yeah, we have no problem with a compromise with idolatry. No problem at all. And how dare you say that it's wrong? It is especially disloyal and offensive to God. We must look at the Ten Commandments not as impersonal ethical laws that exist out there somewhere in the realm of ideals, which is the Greek view of ethics. The Greeks actually had more wisdom in their pagan philosophy, which is wrong, but they had more wisdom in the way they looked at things than modern secular humanists. They understood that if everything is in flux, if there is no point of reference, then there is no meaning. There is no order for society. So they posited this realm of ideals that existed out there to which their version of God, the first mover, and their version of man could look for ethics. They believed there had to be an absolute ethic or you couldn't have a society. In that, they were wiser than modern pagans who simply believe that everything evolved from pond scum. But that's not the biblical view. But they're very loving laws. They're personal that we swear to obey in our, our baptismal vows and our confession of Christ. They're personal. They come from a personal, loving God. 
This aspect of the law is a very personal covenant law designed to nurture our continued fellowship with God, our continued relationship with God is the reason Jesus said, John 14, 15, if you love me, keep my commandments. John 15, 10, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Now, is Jesus saying that we're saved by works, like the Roman Catholic heretics and uh, the Federal Vision say? Absolutely not. Sanctification is a fruit of our salvation. It's a fruit of justification. It's a fruit. We're already saved by Christ apart from the law. But once we're saved, we are to be faithful to our husband. God, not Moses, originally wrote the Ten Commandments on stone tablets. Exodus 31.18. These moral perpetual laws set forth in summary the basis or stipulations for God's people to exist and live in a peaceful, loving, cooperative relationship with Yahweh. The church as wife must lovingly and willingly submit to her husband's ethical principles because God is holy and must have a holy, righteous household. The purpose of salvation is for us to obey the law and be sanctified. I'll never forget, I was at a Christian bookstore. There was this one bookstore that sold Puritan books. I was first becoming a Calvinist. This is in the 70s. And a guy came over, and he was a Campus Crusade for Christ guy. And we saw him witness to this guy right outside the church. The store had giant windows. So he witnesses to the guy. The guy kneels, and he prays the prayer from the, you know, the four spiritual laws. And he accepted Christ into his heart. Then the guy was all happy, and he left. So what does he do? He walks into the liquor store, buys a pack of Marlboros and a six-pack of beer, and goes to the phone. He's <laughs> getting high, talking about how he just accepted Christ into his heart. Believers have, uh, now, <coughs> unbelievers are obligated to obey all the laws in the Bible, all the moral laws, because they have been created by Yahweh and God is their sovereign Lord. Okay, so get away from this idea that the Ten Commandments are for the church, they're not for the world. The world is have, has natural law only. That's nonsense. Believers have an additional reason. Yeah, God is Lord. He created us. We, we owe him everything. For the blood of Christ has brought them into a personal, loving, covenant relationship with God. <coughs> the same law governs all man. The law is universal. It's perpetual. But we have an additional reason. We've been bought with a price. 1 Corinthians six nineteen to 20 Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? And you are not your own, for you were bought at a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit and consequently are set apart for sacred use. Our whole persons, our minds, our hearts, our bodies, belong to God and must not be used for sinful or profane purposes. It is not ours to use as we please, which is human autonomy but is to be used solely for the purposes for which the Lord designed it. This new state of reality is true because we have been delivered by purchase, which is by the sacrificial blood of Christ. His blood, or vicarious suffering unto death, is our ransom, because by it Jesus met all the demands of divine justice. The indwelling spirit within us is only there because of the redemptive work of Christ. 
Galatians 3, 13 to 14. Our bodies are members of Christ, 1 Corinthians 6, 15. The Holy Spirit joins us to him. Paul says, our Lord gave himself for the church, the elect, Ephesians 5, 26, that he might sanctify it and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word. That he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that he should be, she should be holy and without blemish. Here the church purchases the bride of Christ. The church is the bride is the object of a special, saving, exclusive love. The Savior or bridegroom loves his bride more than any other thing in creation. As a bride belongs solely to her own husband, the church belongs exclusively to Christ. The result of this special, exclusive, spiritual union is so the church will be holy. Once again, there's that concept of covenant. The covenant. The covenant. This is accomplished by our Lord achieving our justification, the expiation of sin, the propitiation of God's wrath, which reconciles us to God, which results in us receiving the Spirit of God, who uses the Word of God to deliver us from the pollution of sin. Note how Paul uses covenantal imagery based on the in intimacy and love of the marriage covenant. It's interesting. I mean, you read Ephesians 5. He's saying that human marriage, human marriage is based on what God has with the church. It's not the other way around. Isaiah 62, 5b. As the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. When the people of Israel fell into gross idolatry, as Moses tarried on the mountain, when he came down, he smashed the stone tablets as a physical sign that the people had broken the covenant. <coughs> Exodus 32:19. After Moses is a type of Christ interceded on behalf of the people, who God was ready to destroy. Remember that? Okay, Moses, I'll just, just I'll just kill all these people. I'll raise up a new people from you. And what did Moses do? He interceded on behalf of the people, and God spared the people. He wanted to destroy them for spiritual adultery, and he had every right to. The people were required to drink the ashes mixed with the water of the calf idol after Moses had first smashed it, burnt it with fire, ground it to powder. And this ritual, this cleansing ritual, deliberately mirrored the ordeal of jealousy which the law required when a husband brought a charge of adultery against his wife. Numbers 5, 11 to 31. Covenant, the covenant. The covenant. This covenantal aspect of the law comes with covenant sanctions. For gross habitual disobedience and covenant blessings for habitual obedience or covenant faithfulness. One of the chief matters in which the Old Testament visible church was punished for its syncretism and idolatry was the rise in power of the pagan forces around them who punished and oppressed them. This is especially evident in the book of Judges. They fall into idolatry. They forget God. God raises up the pagans around them to oppress them. They cry out for mercy. God raises up a prophet, they repent, and then their enemies are defeated. The lesson here for our study of setting back the forces of darkness is that taking dominion biblically is not simply a numbers game, which Arminian heretics and megachurches have mastered by doctrinal and worship compromises, getting these gigantic churches. They have compromised, they have serious errors and declension. 
The church must stand for the whole moral law of God, personally, socially, and doctrinally. And faithfully follow the whole moral law, both tables, laws relating to God, laws relating to man. As it preaches the gospel and plants new churches, otherwise it will not have the proper strong breastplate of righteousness against secular humanists, socialists, and sodomites. And this is the great problem with the theonomy movement, the Christian Reconstruction movement. They carried very little for the first table of the law in biblical worship. Biblical worship offends people. And they were trying to reach as many Christian uh, various denominations as possible. Worship is very corrupt today. People are not worshiping God biblically anymore, most people. They're not singing the songs without psalms without musical instruments. They're not singing divine psalms. They're engaging in entertainment and so forth. So they basically had to ignore, and they weren't even Sabbatarian. Gary North is against the Sabbath, and Rush Dooney published Gary North's anti-Sabbatarian article in his masterpiece, which is uh, uh, The Institutes of Biblical Law, which is a masterpiece. Everybody should read it ten times. I've read it probably at least seven. It's a masterpiece. You know, uh, people people have their blind areas, people have their weak areas. I'm not saying don't read Rush to any, I'm just saying you've got to keep in mind that they did not emphasize the first table of law properly, and that's why the Christian Reconstruction Movement has been a, a, a great source of people going into Romanism, uh, and following completely corrupt worship. James Jordan taught it. It spread to David Shelton. It spread to Peter Lightheart. It has spread to Doug Wilson. It has spread through Doug Wilson and others throughout the whole United States, this completely corrupt, Romanizing germs of the failure of the Christian Reconstruction Movement. There must be a great care to keep the breastplate of righteousness whole or entire, and we must be very careful to keep it fastened tightly over our torso or our vital parts. Many modern evangelical and even Reformed churches denigrate, neglect, set aside, and even outright reject, for example, dispensationalism, the moral law as revealed in the Old Testament, or at least the details, the explanations in various parts of the moral law. This disrespect and rejection has left the church largely socially irrelevant. Now look, I enjoy uh, Ben Shapiro, and I enjoy those two Romanists. Uh, there's all these conservative Romanists on there who talk about politics, and they're talking against homosexuality and all these things. But they're so unbiblically based. They don't talk. They can't appeal to Scripture. They wouldn't be popular. So they have to appeal to pragmatism and natural law or whatever, and it's just nonsense. It's not going to get you anywhere. Yeah, they're, they're very good. They may slow the tide toward evil, but they're not going to stop it and turn it back because you can't fight... Uh, something with nothing. You have to apply biblical law and the whole word of God to the situation. A soft antinomian church cannot stand against the hard antinomianism of political secular humanists. A church that holds to an unbiblical legalistic pietism produces an ethical vacuum that is happily filled by Marxist and atheist concepts of compassion. We must view the law and ethics covenantally. So we view them not as some impersonal set of rules, but as our guide to nurturing our daily communion with God through covenant faithfulness. Revelation 2, 25 to 26, this is Jesus speaking <coughs> to a church, hold fast what you have till I come. And he who overcomes and keeps my words into the end, to him I will give power over the nations. 
That's Jesus speaking to a new covenant church in Asia Minor. Those who are obedient to Christ's commands, who are covenantally faithful, will spiritually have dominion over planet Earth. They will reconstruct it for His glory in terms of His perfect law word. There can be no substitute for a comprehensive, habitual obedience. And then very briefly, I didn't even have time to finish this, but just one more, fourth. The breastplate of righteousness is necessary for assurance of salvation. John said, he who says, I know him, and does not keep his commandments, is a liar. And the truth of God is not in him. But whatever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. By this we know that we are in him. Yahweh, the God who exists, the God who created the universe, is not interested in a mere intellectual assent to certain propositions. Without true faith. Those who do not habitually obey and strive to keep all of God's commandments reveal that they do not really care to know God intimately and walk with Christ. If we really believe in Christ and thus know God experimentally, we will strive to please him by obeying his commandments. And John emphasizes this throughout his epistle. He bases a confident prayer life on the same principle, 1 John 3.22, and whatever you ask, and whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do those things which are pleasing in his sight. If you're out there fornicating and sorting coke, don't expect God to answer your prayers. Of course, you could be praying for repentance. James teaches the same thing from a different perspective. James 2.20. But do you not know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? It is a non-existent, false, worthless, counterfeit faith. He's not saying you have to add works to faith to be saved. He's saying it's not even a real faith to begin with. It's another passage the Federal Visionists completely twist out of, twist it in a Roman Catholic fashion. These passages are teaching that we must, are not teaching that we must add good works um, or habitual obedience to the keeping of God's law to faith in Christ in order to achieve salvation. Nothing could be further from the truth. For Paul emphasizes repeatedly that we are justified by faith in Christ apart from the works of the law. Just read the book of Romans. Read the book of Galatians. Read the book of Philippians. Read the book of Ephesians. That even our best works are, as believers are tainted with sin and merit nothing. Jesus said that in Luke 10, 17.10. We are justified by the imputed righteousness of Christ, not by our own works of righteousness. But we are saved to be holy. We are, God is our Father, in a special saving sense, and God is our husband, our bridegroom. We're in covenant with God. We're married to God, to obey God and be faithful, to be a faithful wife unto him, in his household, the household of faith. The law is not impersonal. The law is very personal. It's a love letter to the church. Now, I understand that what's what's happened, what dispensationalists have done, they've taken these... Uh, Things that Paul says about the law, where Paul speaks very negatively of the law as a means of achieving justification, and they apply them to the law in general. Paul's problem with the Jews was that they were trying to be saved through the law. He had no problem with the law as a means of achieving sanctification or holiness. Yeah, we need the Spirit, obviously. We need to look to Christ, obviously. But his problem was with trying to be saved by the law. Once you understand that, 
uh, the New Testament's beautiful because he appeals to the Ten Commandments in the Book of Romans. He appeals to the Ten Commandments in Galatians. He appeals to the moral law from the Old Testament repeatedly throughout the New Testament. If the, if the law in general is bad, then that doesn't make any sense whatsoever. But if the law trying to achieve justification is bad, which certainly is, which Paul condemns over and over and over again, yeah. But if for sanctification, it's wonderful. But we'll stop there. I ran, out, I ran out of time. I was sick this week. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much. What amazing teaching in your word. What, what teaching we've received <coughs> from you. We thank you. Inspired perfect, your law. Make us faithful wives. Make us faithful sons and daughters to you. Make us love your holy law and not see it as oppressive or bad, but as wonderful so that we can have covenant blessings and not covenant curses, so that we can be a salt and light to culture and not part of the problem. Help us, Lord, to be obedient and help us pass it on to our children. And Lord, we beg you that our children would believe and serve Christ. Otherwise, there's no point in them being born. They're going to jump right into the pit of hell when they die if they don't serve Christ and believe in him. So we thank you for this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.